Welcome to Corporately. I'm Glenn. And I'm Denny. Denny, today we are continuing our conversation on the highly polarizing topic of return to office. In episode one, we went through the basic arguments for and against. And I'm going to start us today by continuing that discussion around the psychology of the CEO. We already discussed the ego side of things, which I think might be a very important reason. But I also want to talk about the idea and the psychology of being the one responsible for everything. The core of this perspective is that being the CEO is a tough place to be. Something is going wrong all the time. Someone is always not doing their job, even among those highly paid senior execs. There are people problems everywhere. There are product issues, process issues, questions about the business model, and it's always your fault as the leader of the company. Often, there is no easy answer. When things go wrong, they must do things that are hard like cutting the workforce or eliminating products or selling off parts of the company. And they are going to be constantly questioning themselves. And at times, maybe a lot of the time, good or bad luck play an important role no matter what they choose. So with this perspective, if you're faced with an unending list of problems, do you really want to take the risk of letting people work from home? In other words, is the return to office decision being made based on fear of things getting worse? One thing that I take from your comments would be that I think you have a particular set of experiences that are dissimilar from mine. And mm. by that, what I mean is there are a lot of people in charge of a lot of people. And each one of those folks, the executive level is going to have a part to play in this, not just the CEO. I think in a bigger organization, you have to look at all the exec. And I think that a lot of what you're referring to lies within that group. Smaller company, you can probably summarize this as if there's one person in charge that makes all the decisions, the psychology that's driving those decisions is going to be very important. In a bigger organization, if you've got, you know, six or seven management levels, a lot of these decisions are going to be driven by people further down the food chain. The truth is that psychologists have investigated this and they've come to the conclusion that there are essentially some easily definable divide in how these decisions are made at the executive level. The first divide, not surprisingly, comes with age. The older execs tend to be more in favor of working in the office than the younger. The reason for this apparently is simply based on how these folks learned to work. If you're an executive that's in their 50s or 60s, everything that you know about running a company is based on this office-centric perspective that you've always lived within. Change is going to feel less desirable. Younger execs who are coming into to the workforce in the last few years, are, I think, are much more able to absorb and be a little more flexible in how this works because they don't have that same learning experience. And by defining it that way, you could also say the same thing may be true for CEOs. So there's a lot of very young people who are CEOs, particularly of startups. We're talking folks that are in their 20s and 30s. And I think it would be safe to say that for the most part, those younger folks would be more amenable to a variety of work. Model. And I think if you really want to look at the psychology, certainly there is some factor of fear in there, but I think it might be even more complex than that. I don't know that there's a single definition of why a particular CEO says, I want everybody in the office. I think it could be based on that combination of things, their age, their past experience, the size of the corporation, the kind of work that they do. So much like the things we discussed last week, I don't see that there's a single answer don't you think, even in the largest organizations, that every group needs to be 
treating the return to office question the same? And doesn't that mean the CEO is really the one making the decisions? Aren't you playing with fire if you treat the engineering group different than the HR group, different than the accounting group? I don't think so. My opinion is that the only way this ever worked is if you treat everyone differently. Let me give you an example of an experience that I had. To be clear, I've got about 35 years of experience working in corporations and for the government, state and federal government. And I have seen managers manage in all sorts of bad ways, but I've also seen some really good ones. The absolute best person that I ever worked for treated every single person on her team differently. She was able to understand what motivated each one of us, what we needed, what we were best at, and adjusted her expectations based on that. And as a result, the team was very successful. It had quite the reputation in the organization as being the most productive, the most reactive, had the highest customer satisfaction. On the other hand, I also saw people in that same organization who took that approach. Everybody gets the same exact treatment. And it might be okay for one person, but you've got 10 other people on your team that don't like what's going on. I do not think that in any of these conversations that we're having, a one-size-fits-all is the right answer. The problem is you've got to have, as I've referred to many times, you've got to have managers who can accommodate all of these things. They've got to be able to know who can do what and how they do it best. And they need to react and interact with those folks based on the individual personality. I agree that that's the ideal, but in the large corporations I've worked in, when there's something like this and there's not a clear policy, or the policy is, you know, leave it up to individual groups, it can breed a sense of unfairness. Right now, I happen to be in a hybrid work environment. And even today, there are folks that aren't following the policy. Maybe during the pandemic, they moved 50 miles from work because they assumed that this would be going on forever. And so now you've got a case where you've got some people following the policy. Let's say your policy is coming in three days a week. You've got some people coming in one or no days a week. And it starts to feel like, hey, wait a minute, why am I doing this if these other people don't need to do this? And to your point, you need managers that effectively manage through that, but that's not happening. What does that do to an organization to have that going on? And yet it's another problem coming up through the ranks and eventually is going to get to the CEO. And what is that person going to do? Well, you make good points there. And I certainly understand the chaos that would ensue from something like that. But part of the question needs to be, what kind of work do you as an individual do? Can you do that effectively in a remote environment? Can you do it more effectively in a remote environment? One would have to establish some sort of an understanding within the organization that there are some jobs that you simply can't do them remotely. You need to be in the office. Most people would agree that those jobs can be defined. As I mentioned uh, in our last podcast, my work has always been in infotech. Started out as a programmer. We call ourselves now software engineers or developers, but you write code. The majority of that work adapts very well to solitary environments because you're creating these lines of instructions for a computer and your moment-to-moment -moment interaction with other people typically is just an interruption. On the other hand, you mentioned HR. I think HR is a little different in the fact that a lot of times you have to have face to face conversations with people, perhaps about delicate topics, not all the time. Sometimes it's fairly routine work. Your example is the reason that there is no agreement on how this should work is that every case is unique. Every organization is unique. Every individual, unfortunately, is also unique. I can tell you for a fact that 
A large percentage of people in the current workforce, according to surveys, have indicated that they would take a cut in pay in order to remain remote. They would leave their current job and go to a different position in order to remain remote. Job market is still fairly robust right now. Right. But let me take you back to where I kind of started. If you're faced as a, the top leader of an organization with an unending list of problems, and then this annoying thing of people becoming upset about you know working in the office or not working in the office or who's allowed to work in the office, who's not. And that just keeps bubbling up. And then maybe you read an article of some guy figuring out how he can just be an average worker, but working for three different companies and getting paid three different paychecks. What would influence you in terms of how to make a good decision to support a growing and thriving company? Is it the fear? of, oh my God, this is just another problem and I can just squelch this? Is that a thing that you think drives their decision-making? Well, it, it very well could be. You make me think of a couple of things I want to mention. One is let's let's talk about these folks that have multiple jobs. I, I know it exists. I've never personally encountered it, but I've certainly read stories about it. I think that that's kind of, it is such a small number of people that are doing mm -hmm. that, that I don't think we need to worry about it. I can't imagine how you pull that off. So let's just not consider that as an issue that we're going to tackle since it's such a small number of people supposedly well, that are doing it. I, I agree it's irrational to consider it, but is it something that gets inside the head of that top person? And is this happening? Do they know it's such a small number it's not worth reacting to? Well, I'm sure that there are people who believe that that is the case, that half of their employees have two jobs. I, I don't know why they would base decisions on that without some facts to back it up. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I can't imagine that that's justification for making a policy decision in a company, unless you've got some strong evidence that half your workforce is working at three other companies. I, I don't know. I have never really considered that to be a big enough problem that we would have to face it. So if you're capable of working three jobs and you can get away with it, well, I say good on you. I don't know how you could possibly do it, but <laughs> crazy. <laughs> You mentioned Elon Musk. I think that's a good example. The turmoil surrounding Twitter and all that's going on there and the fact that he removed a significant portion of the company. It remains to be seen what the outcome of this is. So I think if we're looking at extremes, Musk is at the far uh, of the extremes in his position that there is there's no option. Everybody's going to work in the office or you're done. I think that's short-sighted. I also think that it sort of flies in the face of reality. But you're going to find people that will work for him because, you know, the pay is good. Maybe they like the work. Maybe they're perfectly happy working in the office. The people that are not going to work for him are the ones that don't want to spend an hour commuting. And people are going to make their decisions based on what they want personally, for sure. So what drives him and what drives Jeff Bezos and what drives the CEO of any company, I think depends to a large degree on who they are. And there's going to be just as many variations in that as there are variations in what these companies do. If we look at what motivates the CEO to establish certain policies, they are the boss and they get to do that. So it ultimately comes down to the worker. If you work for a company whose CEO says, this is what you must do and you don't want to do it, go somewhere else. It's really that simple. If a person gets to the level of power that they're the CEO of a corporation, they do have the ultimate say in what goes on there. They can define however they want the work and the location of the work and the hours of the work. That's their privilege. And the employee is an employee at will. 
if you don't like what's going on, you need to find something else. It's really that simple. There are going to be plenty of options for people. And again, we have to remind folks, this is only within those job categories that are amenable to this kind of work. So essentially anything you can do on a laptop or a phone seems like you should have the option, if that's important to you, to work anywhere you want. But I think it's also key, going back to my point earlier, that it's not just the CEO that does this. Because a lot of folks at the executive levels, whether they're in the C-suite or whether they're managers or or line managers or whatever their position is, has the ability to make a lot of decisions. And the bigger the company, the more likely they are to make decisions that the CEO is clueless about, kind of lost in the the haze, so to speak. So fear, sure. There are going to be CEOs that are driven by fear. There are going to be CEOs that are driven by a sense of needing to be in absolute control of everything. I've worked for both kinds of those folks. Elon's motivation is probably very different from Jeff Bezos's motivations for making these statements, whatever they are. Well, often uh, an exec team or a CEO will turn to management consultants or supposed experts or other research for ideas or even potentially to support their decisions. What do you think about the research around productivity, return to office, hybrid, remote work? Here's what I know for sure from having looked into this in some depth. You tell me what position you want to take, and I'll provide you with the research to back it up. So if your position is that remote work is ineffective, productivity is low, it's a terrible thing, lots and lots of research pointing to that. On the other hand, if you say, I want you to demonstrate to me that working at home is a highly productive, much more conducive to happiness, I I can do the same thing. There's plenty of research there. It's maddening when you attempt to find factual data to support a for or against position because there is, I'm making air quotes here, factual data to support both sides. And the deeper you dig, the more you realize None of it is actually factual because everybody's using a different set of parameters to do this. Mm -hmm. So they use a a different group of people. They do it across different industries. They have different measurements for how they determine that productivity is up or down. It's maddening. I think this is part of the reason we're in the pickle that we're in right now is that pick a side and there's something there to support you. I would like to think that there is a way that you could actually determine that people are more productive in a general sense. I don't think there is. We talked last time about my opinion that the best person to determine productivity is the manager of a worker. If you report to me and I give you an assignment to, let's say, again, going back to my background, to write code to support a particular function, my determination of your productivity is, did you do it? Did you deliver it on time and does it work? And that's a one-to-one thing. If I'm looking at an entire team, I have to look at every individual on that team in the same way. Is that team getting things done as we plan for them to get done on time, on budget, and does it work? Is the quality there? Try and come up with some sort of parameters around productivity based on anything less specific than that, I don't think works. I was just reading a report yesterday in which the study was conducted and the way they determined how to measure people is that they selected folks by whether their birth date was odd or even. Well, that's one way to do it, but it doesn't seem to me like that really looks at any of the specifics about who these people are and what they're working. There was no discussion in this report about how they measured 
the results. It was only how they divided this group up. I, I see a lot of that. I see these, they feel almost like arbitrary choices for how you're going to measure it. Anyone who is looking for facts to support whether remote work is more or less productive is likely to end up just like me, frustrated at a lack of factual information. Yeah, I completely agree. It's hard to pull any value out of any of this research, and it seems more often to be a way to sell consulting services. Why don't we switch back to the role the manager plays in all of this? One of the trends of the last decade or so has been expanding the scope of control of managers and putting more and more people under a single individual. 10 to 20 is not uncommon now, directly reporting to a single manager. What is that for implications to managing a work-from-home workforce? Good question. I've got some specific thoughts and experience on that. At one point, I had a team of 27 people, direct reports, which was unmanageable. There were too many people, too many things going on. I thought to myself, okay, how do I how do I deal with this? I was reminded of a company that I'd worked for before where the CEO, it was a small company, it was a startup, very successful company that got into the business of running ATMs and was one of the first in the world to operate point-of-sale terminals, kind of a forward-looking group. And the guy that ran it was an ex-Marine. I talked to him a few times and he explained to me that in the Marine Corps, a combat unit is divided in management style so that no individual has more than three people to deal with because that's a high-intensity, high-risk environment. Research had shown that it is virtually impossible for anyone to keep track of more than three. Hmm. So if you're a platoon leader, you've got three riflemen that report directly to you. You're responsible for them and no more. So yourself and those three. And depending on how far up the chain you go in the Marine Corps, This is the way it's always sort of divvied up until you get up to the higher flag ranks. So I thought, well, let's try that. So what I did was I split my team into three functional areas, and I appointed a technical project lead to each of those. And I said, you need to keep track of these folks and what they're doing and then report back to me. As a result, I was able to manage this enormous group of people fairly effectively because we had we had fewer people to keep track of. As an example, that that worked for me, and I think that it will work for most organizations, but I believe most people are unaware of it. And I think that there is a certain sense of empire building. The more people I get, the more important I am. But things tend to run amok when you do that. And you lose that one-on-one communication with those folks that we keep referring to. I need to know how good a job you're doing, which means I need to pay attention to what you're doing. I understand why this has happened, why there are more people reporting to a single manager. It has to do with cost savings. If you only pay one manager and they've got 15 people, as opposed to split that into two groups or maybe even three groups, right? That that does make sense. But you lose a lot of that moment-to-moment connection and understanding. So that's a little bit outside the topic that we're after here, but I think it relates because you need to know which of those people that are direct reports to you are able to work remotely and which are not and then respond accordingly. I had people that could work remote and I let them. I had people that couldn't and I denied them the opportunity and I explained to them why. You just simply don't get as much done when you're at home. You need to be in here. More detail around a very complicated situation because it involves people and everybody's different. Everybody kind of requires a different a different look. As a CEO, if you have flattened your organization, you do have managers with 27 direct reports. Will you believe 
that in office is, is more necessary for them to do their jobs? I think it depends on what their jobs are. Clearly, there are, there are roles that require face-to-face interaction. I think it's harder to define in the remote environment which people are most effective at it. But to me, that's key. You've got to find the right people to do it. You know, that reminds me of some of the the studies I've seen on remote work. And at least one or two of them were looking at sort of the call center type employees. And you think about the old style of a a room full of people sitting at desks with a phone and the the manager was sort of on, on a little platform so they could kind of look over the shoulders of everyone to, to make sure that they were on the phone. They have demonstrated with research that call center employees are maybe more effective if they're being watched constantly or more productive. I should say that they're on the phone more, uh, which is generally what you want. But uh, with technology now, you can kind of monitor that sort of thing. That Would it help a CEO to know that there were new technologies in place that would allow you, just like a call center employee, you can monitor their activity minute to minute with technology. Would that help a CEO? For sure. And I think it's still kind of back to that base question that you posed, and that has to do with the psychology of the CEO, who they are. But clearly, that's the case. I happened to just call my internet provider a couple of weeks ago, and I'm speaking to some guy somewhere in the Caribbean. I can't remember where. I think that there are definitely technologies that will help. I, I want to mention something here that just kind of popped into my head that is, I think, in a way relevant to all of this. I'm going to get in the Wayback Machine, and I'm going to go way back to 1970. So we're talking, what is that? That's 50-some years ago. There was a, a bit of a fad in the early 70s for people to declare themselves futurists, people who would look at what was going on in the world and then write a book and say, this is what it's going to be like in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. There was a guy named Alvin Toffler who wrote a book called Future Shock, which is still in print to this day. And he made this raft of predictions about what the future was going to be like. And when you when you look at that, when you look at what he said all those years ago and what has transpired, it's eerie how accurate he was in most areas. And one of the things that he talked about was exactly what we're talking about, that because of technology, in 1970, there was no internet, didn't exist. Or if it did, it was a secret government deal. And yet he said, work is going to move out of the office and it's going to, to end up in people's home. And part of the reason is the technology to support this is coming. And here's what it's going to look like. So he talked about the internet. He talked about how people would be able to work from anywhere. He talked about cable TV. Off the top of my head, he, he was a guy who mentioned genetic engineering and cloning and stuff like that. I think that when you look at where we are today and some of the things that we sort of take for granted today, you realize that this is a this is a road that we're on. And it's not a question of whether we want it to happen or not. It's going to happen. People are going to start working remotely. This actually is going to lead us in, I think, to another topic having to do with cities. But I believe that it is an impossible task for CEOs to think that they're going to stop this move of people out of the office and all the advantages that they gain by doing so simply to retain control or the perception control. This will be a wake-up call for a lot of corporate executives when people just continue to do this. It's a sea change in the approach that we take as a community to work and what constitutes work and what constitutes the environment that we work in. 
Yeah, that's a good uh, segue into the real estate discussion. You've got these companies with these empty offices, paying mortgages, and all of these things that come with not filling up the space that you have. How is that influencing a CEO's decision? It's costing a lot of people a lot of money is what it comes down to. I think it is a direction that you simply can't stop. So let's look at what's going on in that regard. This is an area where we can look at research and have actual factual data. Because unlike trying to get some sort of a handle on how people feel about things and how effective they are, these are actual numbers you can measure. And right now in the US, there's something like 1 billion square feet of empty office space. That's a lot. I looked into this this week and there's a, a graphic that I found that said, all right, if you had a, an office building that had a 20,000 square foot floor, it would be 48,000 stories high. That's 529,000 feet high. That's a lot of space. Somebody's still paying for that. Even if there's no one in it, they're still paying for it. There are attempts to convert some offices to maybe a little more friendly spaces to to try and make them look a little more comfortable. I, I will say that uh, my wife worked for a company in San Francisco for a couple of years, and I made a trip down there with her once and went to this office. And it was the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. It was not like any office I had ever seen. I suspect it's empty now, but it had all sorts of amenities that made it feel like you were kind of at home. And it was really nice. I mean, it was a very friendly space. But interestingly enough, this company that I'm referring to was 100% remote. So the only people that were ever in the office were the people that, as we mentioned last time, had flown in for these concentrated development sessions, and then they would leave. So they had accommodations for people to stay there. They had kitchens. They had actually had a bar, fully stocked bar, mm -hmm. had ping pong tables and pool tables, and really nice. That's happening. But the other thing you mentioned just a few minutes ago reminds me that there are also a lot of moves in these cities with all this empty office space to convert these buildings into residences. So I don't know what the numbers are on that, how realistic that is, but as we know, it's getting harder and harder to afford a place to live. So I think that what will happen is that some of these empty offices, depending on where they are, particularly if they're in suburban office parks, may end up being converted to condos or apartments for people to live in. In the short term, this is costing real estate investors a lot of money. And that is clearly going to drive people to encourage, I'm paying for it anyway, let's fill it up with, with folks. It won't necessarily save them any money, but they'll feel like at least they're getting something the other thing we have to consider about this is that very recently, this whole concept of empty office space has now fallen into the political black hole. The current administration issued statements, I think this past week, that said all federal workers are now going to have to be back in the office by September, something like that. I'm a little vague on the details. I look at that and I realize, okay, there's motivation for them to make that statement, even though current administration is democratic and the sort of general tone from the democratic side of things is that people should be free to work remote. The current general tone from the Republican side is more, they should all go back in the office. So I look at this and I think, okay, why would a democratic administration be doing this? And I think there are two reasons for it. One, it's a political ploy to try and encourage people to uh, support maybe some of their other agendas. And two, it's because the cities are bleeding cash. 
because every office worker that doesn't show up in the office building ends up costing the city an average of almost $3,000 a year in tax. So if you've got thousands of people that aren't coming to work in the city, all that tax revenue goes away. These are things that are easy to quantify, unlike a lot of the other conversations we've had. You can look, for instance, at at Washington, D.C., which is kind of the hub of, of what we're talking about. Their vacancy rate right now is almost 21%. 21% of the office space in D.C. is empty. It's higher than that in other cities, but it all hovers around 20%. I think the average is just over 20%. That is a huge amount of unused space that someone is still paying for. And whether it's someone being the companies that don't have their people in there or the real estate companies that own the property, it's still, it's a huge bleed. And then the motivation, which we touched on last week of the cities is this is really bad for our bottom line because tax revenues are on the decrease and in enormous numbers uh, decrease. We're talking millions and millions of lost revenue in cities like San Francisco. It's probably closer to billions that they're not getting because people aren't coming into town. They're not going to lunch. They're not paying for parking. All of these things that generated some sort of income as a tax for the city government. There's a huge push to get people back in the office for reasons that have nothing whatsoever to do with productivity, with individual happiness of the workers, with any of that. It's all dollars and cents. And that push is going to get even stronger. You mentioned the real estate investors losing money, but often those companies are tied to leases that are for five years or more. And we're only about three years into this pandemic. So if there is progress being made on less people in the office five days a week, you can imagine many of those leaders of the companies are thinking, hey, we can get rid of this office space or we can consolidate, we can go to hoteling, those types of things. That financial hit and that pressure is going to hit those investors even more so a few years from now. Not only they aren't able to fill new open space, they're losing ground on the assets they do have. And I think what you're pointing to there is a problem that has not fully been realized yet. And I'm not saying that, that we're not aware of it. I think that the end game on that is going to be it's going to be bad for a lot of people. I think it will impact us in ways we haven't quite figured out yet. City budgets are already pretty tight. You know, when you're talking about trying to fund police and fire and healthcare and trying to deal with homeless problem, and now suddenly we're going to decrease revenues because of this, it's going to be a problem that we can't ignore that oddly could be mitigated by making everybody go back to work in the office. This is going to get worse before it gets better, I think. And it's going to get worse for different groups of people as time passes. Hey, I'm going to mention again this Toffler guy and his book, Future Shock, because I just remembered one of the things that he stated that has been debated to some degree is that in the future, remember, this was 50 years ago, cities will become less important. And there were a lot of people that pushed back on that. And up until the pandemic, every city in, in the world literally was getting bigger because people were continuing to move there because that's where the jobs were. So think back to the 1800s when the United States was basically an agrarian society. Everybody was farmers and so they raised cows and sheep and corn and whatever. Industry showed up and the factories were put in the major metropolitan areas and people moved into the city for the good jobs. And that has continued until now 
when we're entering this next phase. So we went from an agricultural society to an industrial society, and now we're going to a technological society. And with tech, doesn't matter where you are. You can live on top of a hill in a log cabin with solar power and work anywhere in the world. It is going to change. The cities are going to suffer. And I think that we are all going to see declines in population. Real estate markets are going to be depressed as a result. Things that are almost hard to imagine. I don't know. Maybe it's these dystopian movies that we watch, you know, where the cities have turned into urban nightmares and crime and all that sort of stuff. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that we see something like that. Or they turn more residential. Like you said, these office buildings with currently with office workers, maybe they turn into more of a, a living place and cities become more of the uh, neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, I will say with real estate professional workers moving farther out, it has impacted real estate markets that have been traditionally not high priced. So you start seeing individuals that were easily able to afford their homes suddenly getting hit with the real estate taxes just keep going up and up and up. And it's just insane to have a little house out 50 miles from the nearest city and their taxes start to become, at least in Washington state, $10,000, $12,000 a year. Bend is a community of about 100,000 people that has attracted mostly folks from California. The majority of people who live here came from somewhere in California. We've got, in my neighborhood, I'm the only person who lives on this cul-de-sac of about 12 homes. It's not from California. When the pandemic struck, it was as though there was a steady line of cars coming north, also from Portland and Seattle coming here because suddenly, hey, I can work anywhere. I'm going to Bend because it's a smaller town. The real estate's relatively inexpensive compared to some of these major cities. The net result was real estate prices went through the roof. Uh, we have a different tax structure in the state of Oregon than you have in Washington. So it's painful, but not anywhere near as painful as what you go through. So we have limits on how high they can raise it per year. They're going up, but not equivalent to what you're saying. What we saw here was a little miniature version of what's happening across the country. People are fleeing the cities because they don't like the traffic. And by the way, traffic is the number one reason people want to work remote. They don't want to commute. They want to avoid the commute. It's just lost time. It's wasted time. Even if you're listening to a great podcast, it's lost time. One research reports that I looked at, and true or not, who knows, right? Based on what I said earlier, but it turns out that there is a strong probability that people are working more hours for the company in a remote environment because they're not making that commute. The average commute in the U.S., 53 minutes. If you don't have to do that, all you have to do is walk upstairs to your office. There's a possibility you're going to spend at least part of that 53 minutes working. Same thing at the end of the day. This also doesn't include all the things that you've got to do on the way to and from. If you've got kids, you've got to get the kids together. You've got to take them somewhere and then you've got to drive to work. You eliminate all that and you have more hours available for productive work for your employer. This may be why some of the reports I look at show that productivity is higher. It might be that people aren't working eight hours a day. They're actually working nine or 10. It depends. Their life involves the same amount of time away from home, so to speak, but it's away from home while you're in your home office. One thing I did want to throw out there too, is I, I saw reference to this sort of ties into your CEOs driven by fear idea. There was a survey done that seems reasonable in which there was a question asked of what's the greatest issue or greatest concern that you have over your employees working remote. 
And far and away, above any other concern, was the issue of security, that there was great fear that by not having people confined to the physical space where you have control over data access, that security would be an issue for people working remote. I think that's something that we have to admit is probably a very valid point. Yeah, it's often lagging, isn't it? It takes an incident before things really get tightened up. Let's let's come back to one other thought, because this is something CEOs talk about, or at least they talk to a lot, which is our most valuable asset are the people. And you mentioned earlier that many prospective new employees of a company are willing to make a trade-off to save that commute time, to have that opportunity to live elsewhere for a lower salary. Is there simply a financial equation that even if you believe that employees are less productive, even if you believe that, the fact that you can save on compensation, the fact that you can save on real estate, do you think that calculus is going on right now in some of these leaders' heads when they think about return to office and where things are headed in the next five years? If they're not thinking about it, they should be. This is one of those areas where there are some probably more quantifiable numbers. And the average dollar amount that a company saves by not having an employee in the office across the U.S. is a little over $11,000 a year. And that's simply because if you don't have to pay for their space and their equipment and the heat and the lights, that's what it would come down to. Now, obviously, got to factor in long-term lease. I'm paying for it anyway. That's where you get some conflict. But you can put price on that. It costs you that much money to plant someone at a desk in your office and have them work there. All things being equal, if you don't have to pay for an empty spot, you can save yourself 11 grand a year by letting this person work remote. So obviously, if you've got a five-year lease on a 20,000 square foot office space, this kind of doesn't matter. You're paying it anyway. But that is a number that needs to be acknowledged. It's real. I think what we've done here is we've summarized that there are a whole bunch of moving parts here, any one of which is a variable based on the individual. And all of these moving parts have a plus and a minus associated with them. And because you've got kind of a a developing situation, the part we're talking about where companies are paying for empty office space, that's probably the fly in the ointment here is that if that were not the case, I think it would be much easier for a CEO to say, okay, well, if I got people I don't trust, maybe I shouldn't have them working for me. But when you're already paying for something, you've got, like I said, 20,000 square feet of empty space because nobody's in it. It's really hard to just ignore that. It's going to be an expense that you have. I may as well get people back in the office. And then all these other things that I worry about, I don't have to worry about. But if we could eliminate that, if we get to the point where all of these long-term leases are terminated. It's a simpler set of questions the CEO needs to ask about the people that work for him. Then you can get down to the, do I not trust these people? Do I not think that they're getting proper guidance? Are they just going out and playing golf or what? One little side note here, I got to tell you this. When I I read an article in uh, the Washington Post this week about this mandate that federal workers will go back or else. I love to read articles in that newspaper because they're always followed by readers' comments. And some of these are just, they're hilarious. One that really struck me in response to this article was there seemed to be two sides. The readers' comments were saying, hey, I work remote. I'm very good at it. The other was people who work remote are just slackers. They're just bleeding the company. And this one writer said, so I can no longer get a tea time at the local golf course because all these federal workers who are 
air quotes, working from home or out <laughs> playing golf. Obviously not factual, but clearly a perception. So I don't know who this person was, but could be a CEO of a company who thinks that's what's happening. If I don't have these people in the office, I just assume they're not doing anything. And I can't really believe that that's true across the board, but I can believe that it, it happens, that there are people that abuse this opportunity for sure. So I think that brings me back to the same point I just keep pounding on, and that is you have to know who these people are that are working for you directly working for you and whether they're doing a good job or not. Without that, all this other stuff probably doesn't matter because it's kind of all hypothetical. But if you've got an absolute all-star worker who is more effective when they're not distracted, when they're in their own space, who is happiest when they're working in their PJs, that's a good thing. But if you've got somebody who's really just, they log on and then they go play golf all day, that's not a good thing. Right. And I wonder, as you mentioned, it's maybe not the very top person making the final decision on return to office. Maybe it is a group. So let's say it's a group. Are they going to have to see definitive financial evidence that forcing hybrid or return to office or, or any particular direction, it's just going to take time because they need to see it on their bottom line. Because that person you just described being incredibly effective at working from home, eventually that person is going to find another job probably at a smaller company that wants these highly skilled workers, but can't afford the ridiculous salaries. So maybe these workers are making their money for five years at one big, large company, and then being recruited to these smaller companies who appreciate them more, give them that flexibility, allow them to do these things. And as soon as these big companies start realizing they're losing their best folks, they start to see this financial drain on their talent. Maybe that's when things will start to change and move. As you noted, there is a trend to get back into the office. And maybe it's just the last throes of, a, of resistance from, from this idea. Oh, I like that description. I agree with almost everything you said there, except for one fact. And that is that there are some unbelievable salaries being paid to people who work remote and at smaller companies. So it's not necessarily true that I have to work for less money. There are also a lot of questions about if, if I have a fully remote workforce and I'm in San Francisco, so I'm somewhere in this really high income area and I hire people from Omaha, should I pay them less because of that? Some companies say yes. Some companies say, nope, pay them the same thing. This is like everything else we talk about. There's like multiple permutations of every answer for every question, but you don't have to accept less money to go remote. And in fact, there are plenty of instances, factual things that I can support that indicate you can make way more by going to a company that just happens to let you work remote. I don't think the two things are related. I think it does come down to specific skills and experience and the need of the company. But bottom line is it's expensive as hell to lose a worker because you've invested so much to get them in. And we're talking about advertising, interviewing, recruiting, all the expense associated with that, the startup time, the lead time for them to get wound up to do what they're supposed to do. And then they leave and you got to start over all of that information that that person has, all of their knowledge and experience you lose, and you got to go back to square one. That's an expensive proposition. That's an incentive to let these people do what they need to do to keep them happy and employed and working for you. Obviously talking about the good ones, not the ones that want to play golf, but the ones that actually produce for you. I keep circling back to this same point. There is no one size answer. It's literally employee by employee. And that's probably one of the reasons this is so hard to implement because it is 
such a level of detail that the bigger the corporation is you're talking about, the harder it is for them to accommodate that. I think we've covered this topic fairly well. And probably as a last step, we should go away and come up with our own recommendations, our own predictions. The guy from the 1970s uh, obviously did a fantastic job. I think we should summarize all of this discussion, come up with our own idea of what the future holds. And it doesn't have to be 30 or 40 years in the future. It could be in the next five years. And perhaps this is the thing that CEOs need to be thinking about. So why don't we take a little time and come back and we'll discuss this final prediction in the last episode of this series. I think that's a good idea. As you know, I've done a fair amount of consulting in my IT career. I always like to describe a consultant as someone who borrows your watch to tell you what time it is. <laughs> I've got lots of experience in looking at other people's issues kind of from outside and helping organize the approach to, to resolve those issues. And it's probably because I don't have a dog in that hunt. It's easier to be very practical about it. So my prediction is we can easily come up with predictions multiple, because I, I, again, do not think there's a single solution for this, but there are certainly some general steps that anyone could take to help them understand how to react to this whole issue within their own organization. Excellent. Well, as always, it's been a pleasure. And I look forward to the final episode in this series where we give that all report out on where we see remote work heading in the future. I think that'll be fun. I look forward to doing that. <laughs>